Acts chapter 23. We are steadily growing closer to the completion of the book of Acts. And if you're familiar with the Acts 29 movement, many would say uh, that the, the book of Acts still goes on today. There is really no solid completion to the book of Acts. Uh, the ministry of the Spirit of God in the lives of his people is still going on to this day. If you've been studying along with us in Acts chapter 23 and previously, we've watched the Apostle Paul take about 10,000 miles of journeys in his first, second, third missionary journeys. If you remember, Paul in his travels decided he wanted to get back to Jerusalem for the time of the Pentecost. And that's where we sort of see him arriving in Jerusalem. And there's riots that happen around his presence there. There's some misunderstandings, some confusions, uh, some accusations that fly. And Paul ends up getting himself arrested for his own safety. The mob there in Jerusalem, because of the accusations made, began to just tear him apart and try to uh, really do away with him. They wanted to see him killed. So the Romans intervene and have taken him into custody. We're going to watch as he uh, leaves Jerusalem for the last time in his life on earth. He will uh, leave Jerusalem and never return. He'll end up in Rome. So you could call this, I've never heard it called it, but you could say that this is Paul's fourth missionary journey. Because along the way, it's not just that he's passing time to get to Rome. Along the way, God is using him. And we'll see that through the end of the book of Acts. He's continuing, no matter where he is, to be a witness to the things of God and to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul's fourth missionary journey, he goes from Jerusalem. Today, we'll see him go a short distance to Caesarea. Caesarea by the sea, it's called. We'll talk more about that as we go through, but we'll follow in the closing chapters of the book of Acts. We'll follow and watch as he moves along there. So we'll pick up in verse 11 of chapter 23. But the following night, the Lord stood by him, by the apostle Paul, and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. So we studied that verse last week. Paul had been brought before a council of the Jewish leaders. He had been accused in front of them, and they were accusing him to the Romans by mentioning resurrection. He causes a division there. They begin to fight each other. They start tearing Paul apart. And again, the commander steps in. And that night, as Paul sits under Roman guard in the Antonia Fortress in Jerusalem, probably feeling like a failure, probably feeling like he'd blown it, feeling very much alone, Jesus comes to him. And again, we studied that last week. The final part of what Jesus said to him was, hey, you're going to be a witness to me at Rome. And so if that's you and I, God says, hey, here's what I'm going to do with you. We would think, we would hope, we would expect that this would happen now, quickly, right? Isn't that how we deal with God? Like, okay, God, we want it and we want it now. We're not very patient people as Americans. Have you noticed that? We don't do really well in the area of patience. I mean, if my internet doesn't connect instantly, I forget all about the days of dial-up and I can't believe how slow it is. And we just live that way. When you follow God, you have to realize that God is not concerned with the economy of time. He's concerned with the redemption of time. We're concerned with the economy of time. We live in a world that says, well, I've got certain things to get done by a certain time. I've got a to-do list. And the amount I accomplish somehow contributes to my importance. But to God, it doesn't work that way. 
to God, if there's one thing he wants you to be faithful with and you do that one thing faithfully, he's okay with that. He doesn't work on the economy of time and the amount that you accomplish. God's not into that. He's into faithfulness and obedience. So as God tells Paul, you're going to go to Rome, that's a great promise, but there's sort of, you look behind the scenes and you watch what else is happening at the same time. So look at verse 12. And when it was day, Jesus comes to him at night, gives him these promises, tells him what's going on. So when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now you can't have it both ways, right? You can't get to Rome and be killed in Jerusalem unless they send you to Rome in a box or something like that. But that's not what God's plan was. God said, you're going to go to Rome. The Jews now are making a plot, a plan, a conspiracy to kill Paul. Verse 13 says, now there were more than 40. This isn't just some kind of side thing. There were 40 guys, these Jewish zealots, who had formed this conspiracy. And they came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. They're going to have to eat something. They're going to have to eat their words. Because <laughs> that's about all they're going to get to eat because Paul ain't going to die for a long time. So <laughs> not sure how long they said, you know, are we going to really keep this oath? Because Paul's going to escape and you'll see how that happens. But they bind themselves in this oath. We're not going to eat anything until we've killed Paul. Look at verse 15. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So first we see a conspiracy to kill Paul. This group of 40 guys, they say, hey, we're not going to eat anything till we kill Paul. They're pretty serious about this. We're banded together in this. So they come up with this plan. They hatch a plot even though God has said, and they don't know it, God has said, Paul, I'm going to get you to Rome. They hatch a human plot that says, we want to do away with Paul. And they bring the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the Jewish people into this. And they say, hey, here's what we want you to do. We've got this plan, right? We've got this scheme. And we want you to invite Paul, you know, talk to the commander, tell him you need to see Paul so you can interrogate him a little farther. You want to find out exactly what's going on. And when they bring him down to see you in that quarter mile between where he is and where we meet, we're going to lay in wait and ambush him. Now, they knew they'd have to face some sort of Roman guard in the process. They knew it might cost some of them their lives as they did this, as they set up this ambush. But, uh, hey, it was worth it. They want to get rid of Paul. So that's the plot. That's the plan. It's interesting how we plan things, isn't it? I was thinking as I read this, especially when we plan things that aren't in line with God's will, I was thinking about Psalm 2 as I was reading this. Uh, maybe you're familiar with Psalm 2 begins like this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? A vain thing is an empty thing. People are plotting, but they're plotting an empty thing, a thing that's not going to happen, a thing that's not going to come to fruition. Well, who are these people that are plotting a vain thing? Verse 2 of Psalm 2 tells us, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. So it's the kings of the earth, it's rulers on the face of the earth that conspire, that plot, that plan. Well, what are they planning? Who are they against? Well, verse 2 goes on and says, they take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away 
their cords from us. Don't we see that still happening today? Rulers of the earth saying, hey, you know what? We, um, we don't need this God thing anymore. I hear this all the time when I speak with people. You know, they tell us we're in the post-Christian era. You know, there was a time and a place when we were less fully evolved and we were less intelligent that we needed the God thing. It made us feel better. It helped us to understand things we don't understand. But now, you see, we've advanced past that. Now all religion is, is a crutch. Or all religion is, it shackles people. And therefore, now we conspire. Let's get rid of God from our public places. Let's get rid of God from our educational system. Why? Because the world and the world's mentality and the world's doctrine is not afraid to grab our kids when they're in preschool and teach them what they want them to learn about life without God. I can't tell you, church, that in these last days, it is so crucial for us to continue to be as assertive with educating kids in the truth. Romans is where we're going after the book of Acts. The book of Romans talks about people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And all we're trying to do is set it free. That's why I love looking around on Sunday morning, seeing you guys, you're coming, you're learning, so you can go out and you can set a little truth free in the area of your influence. We gotta set that truth free. Why? Because there's a bunch of people trying to suppress it. So they plot and plan, hey, we don't need this God thing anymore. What is God's response to these kind of things? Verse four tells us, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. You ever think about that as you plot and plan and scheme and how you're gonna accomplish this and what you're gonna do and how you're gonna do this? And you ever think God just sits back? I know he does with me. He just sits back and goes, oh, Steve, you're so cute. You know, <laughs> it's so cute how you plan those things. Maybe we should talk about that first. Maybe you should check in with me to see if that's what I want to do or not. And he just has, I mean, it's a different kind of laugh in Psalm 2, I think. Uh, I don't think he thinks it's so cute. It's a laugh as to uh, how in the world do you think it's ridiculous to think that you're going to get rid of me, God would say. And so he says, the Lord holds them in derision. He shall speak to them in his wrath. That's all I want to say about Psalm 2. The point of this all is that there is this group of people that have a plot against one of God's men, whom God said has more to do. And if God is for you, 40 men ain't even going to come close to doing anything. If God is for you, a thousand men can't be against you. If God is for you, who can be against you? If he gave his only son, listen, church, if he gave his only son for you, because sometimes you think God's against you. If he gave his only son for you, how much more will he give you freely all things? God really, really does love you. And he really, really is for you. And sometimes he really, really does discipline. And that really, really does hurt sometimes, but it's meant for your good. But don't mistake, God is not trying to punish you or do away with you. That's Satan's job. He is the one that's come to steal, kill, and destroy. That's these guys. They're empowered by, certainly, anytime someone sets out to do this type of murderous acts, empowered by Satan. Is Satan going to stop Paul from getting to Rome? No way. So the question is, how is Paul going to get away from this? How is he going to survive this? Verse 16 tells us the answer to that. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, just stop there for a second. Did you notice Paul's sister's son? The apostle Paul is one of these figures, these people in the Bible that we would love to know more about. 
there's some physical descriptions that he was kind of short and had a, a unibrow and a big nose. There's some of these descriptions, you know, of him physically. Uh, we wonder about whether he was married. We know he was a Pharisee, and many historically have said the Pharisees would have to be married to be a Pharisee. So if Paul was married, what happened to his wife? Because he speaks about being single and did his wife leave him? Was he a widow? We don't know those answers, but we'd like to. Oh, I can't wait to know more about the Apostle Paul. But we do know that he has a sister. His family, some say, rejected him, excommunicated him when he became a Christian. But evidently, his sister, or at least his nephew, resides here in Jerusalem and is in the right place at the right time to overhear somebody discussing the fact that they were going to have this ambush. Let's read a little farther. We'll make a couple more points here. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. So there's so many miracles happening here. You know, sometimes God intervenes in life supernaturally. And some of you would say, yeah, there's times in my life where God has intervened supernaturally. He saved my life in a supernatural means. We were talking at men's prayer yesterday morning. As you get on the street, you talk to people about the Lord. A lot of times I'll ask this question. Have you ever had a time in your life where you feel like it was supposed to end for you, like that was it, but somehow you feel that some outside force preserved you? And I cannot tell you how many people say, absolutely. Here's when it happened. Here's the deal. Here's what the situation was. And then I say, well, let's talk about that one that preserved you. And so, so many people would say that there was a supernatural preservation at that time. But sometimes, and oftentimes, God's preservation is natural. God uses very natural means in preserving people's lives and ministering to them and moving them along according to his plan. So when we hear of Paul's sister's son hearing about the ambush, we might say, oh, what a coincidence. What a coincidence. Can you believe that? What luck that Paul had, that that kid happened to be in the right place at the right time to overhear the right people talking about that thing. And he's playing with his little Lego truck in the dirt, you know, and they're talking, yeah, we're going to kill Paul. It's going to happen. And he's like, you know, kids don't hear anything when you say, go clean up your room. But as soon as you say, you know, where's the ice cream? They all, where, hey, wait, they say, I heard ice cream. Kids have that selective hearing. And he hears about Uncle Paul, you know, all of a sudden he's chiming in. So we would say coincidence, but I would say God incidents. Amen? God incidents. That God has a way of working things, how he works these things together for good, according to his plan, for those that are called according to his purposes. Was Paul called according to the purposes of God? Are you called? Listen, church, are you called according to the purposes of God? If you are, now don't say that casually, but if you are, then those things that are happening in your life, as you're searching out, as you're following out God's will for your life, doing those things you know to do on a daily basis, God says all those things that happen to you, even the things that are tough, they work together for good for you. They're ultimately working to conform you into the image of his son. You see, sometimes the events of our life are hard to judge in a vacuum. And I'm not talking about eureka. I'm talking about a void of all other 
situations in your life. There's a story that kind of illustrates this about a, a man who lived in the village. He and his neighbor were friends and they would communicate with each other and, and share fellowship together. And they were good neighbors. And one day the man goes out to the market. He buys himself a stallion. And the neighbor comes over when he built the corral for the stallion. He comes over and he says, oh, I see you've got yourself a stallion. That's great. That's good. And the man wisely says, well, how do you know? And then he just kind of scratches his head and goes home. And a week later, they hear this loud cracking noise and the stallion has broken through the boards of the fence and run off into the fields. All the money the guy paid for the horse is now gone. The neighbor hears the ruckus, comes over and says to his friend, oh, I see your stallion has escaped. That's bad. And the guy says, well, how do you know? Because a little while after that, the stallion actually returns with him come two or three mares that he's picked up in the wilderness there and he's brought them home. So the neighbor sees this, the guy rebuilds his fence. Now he's got the stallion, a couple of mares there. Now he can do some breeding. And the neighbor comes over and says, look at that, your stallion came home and he brought mares with him. Isn't that great? And the man says, well, how do you know? You see, because the next week his son is riding the stallion and he gets bucked off and he breaks his leg and the neighbor comes over and says, oh, your son broke his leg. That's too bad. How do you know? You see, little did he know that a few weeks later, the village would go to war with another village. And because this son had a broken leg, he wasn't able to go to the war in which all the young men from that village were killed. You see how these things work? I think you get the point of the story is how do you judge something, whether it was good or bad, without knowing the whole story? And how these things contributed. I've talked to people that have gone through some difficult things. And you say, you know, how did you, how do you view that? What's your perspective on that? Having gone through that very difficult thing, something, an accident that happened or a thing you went through. And oftentimes they'll tell me, you know what, Steve? It was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I bet some of you have stories just like that. I know I do. Something I went through, a broken wrist and a torn ligament and the way it affected my life. I go, you know what? I think it was a really good thing that happened to me. And you have stories like, and Paul has stories like that. We think, oh, what a coincidence. But I want to challenge you, church. Don't call it a coincidence. Call it a God incidence. You see God's hand at work in a natural way. So the kid is brought to the commander. Another miracle that he, he, uh, by the way, Paul, because he was a Roman citizen, his arrest, his imprisonment, wasn't uh, like imprisonment in America. They didn't give him food and water and all that stuff. He had to get that brought in from people on the outside. So you could have, as a Roman citizen, you could have visitors and the visitors would come and bring you things you needed during your imprisonment. So this young man, we don't know how old this kid is, but um, he comes and, and brings the information to the commander. Look at verse 19. The commander took him by the hand, went aside and asked privately, what is this that you have to tell me? So this guy's like big time. He oversees a thousand soldiers. And now he's got a 12-year-old or a 10-year-old. I don't know how old you picture the kid. He takes him by the hand. So that would seem to indicate he was probably a small, he's not 18 or 19. He's probably much younger. And he brings him over. He takes him by the hand very gently, very gently and says, tell me what you've, you've heard, what's going on. And verse 20, he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though you were going to inquire more fully about him, but do not yield to them. This is the kid commanding the commander. You want to talk about a miracle. 
right? This is one of those natural miracles. The kid, the 10-year-old is telling the commander, now don't you listen to them. He's like, oh, okay. (laughs) But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander, verse 22, let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. So now the commander hearing the kids, and not only is Paul, not only is there a conspiracy to kill him, but there's a kid who saves him. I think that is so cool. Thank God for children, by the way. Thank God for children. So the interesting thing to me is now they got to come into the briefing room and the commander is going to put in place an armed security detail to get Paul safely out of Jerusalem. And I love it when I just could imagine being there and all the, the guards and the centurions that are under this commander, they say, well, well, tell us, where did you learn of this plot? How, how are you deciding to do this? Like, did this come from Caesar himself? Like, nah, actually, a 10-year-old told me. I can only imagine the conversation. Uh, you're, we're doing this because a 10-year-old told you there was a problem? Yep. So again, a miracle, not only that this nephew makes it to the commander, but that the commander, by the grace of God, listens to this kid. He could have said, get away from me, kid. What are you doing? Go on. I don't have time for you. But he listens and he believes him. Coincidence or God incidents? Verse 23, after he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So now he sets the plan in motion based on the testimony of this young kid about what was going to happen. He calls up 470 soldiers. 470 soldiers are going to escort Paul out of Jerusalem by night. The third hour of the night is 9 p.m. So they're going to do a forced march some 35 miles to enter Patras, and we'll see that in a few minutes. And that's where they'll get him safely to that point, and then the horsemen will carry him on further. So Paul gets this security detail, this personal security team that carries him out, and they carry with them a letter, again, leaving under cover of darkness so as to avoid the ambush. The letter is to Felix, the governor that's there in Caesarea. We'll talk more about him in a second. Let's read the letter. So the commander's name is Claudius Lucius. We've talked about him. They signed their letters first. That way you knew if you really wanted to read it or not, see who it's from. Claudius Lucius to the most excellent governor, Felix. Now that's a title of honor that's given to people in that position. We'll find out that Felix was not a really excellent governor. More on that in a minute. Greetings. Verse 27. This man who you're receiving was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. So this is the letter that Claudius Lucius wrote to Felix. How do we have the letter? Luke, the author of the book of Acts, is going to spend some time while Paul's in prison in Caesarea. Luke's going to be there. This letter, either Paul had a personal copy of it as a Roman citizen. He could have been given a copy of the letter or it could have been a matter of public record. But Luke, doing his research, 
gets us a copy of the letter, possibly to the chagrin of Claudius Lucius. Why? Did you notice what he said about the order of the events as they happened, as he records them for Felix? Did you catch something there, those of us that have been studying together? Look back at verse 27. He said, this man was seized by the Jews. That was happening in the Temple Mount area. And he was about to be killed by them. That was true. And coming with troops, I rescued him. That was true. Having learned that he was a Roman. That was not true. Do you remember that? He didn't know who Paul was. He thought he was some Egyptian zealot guy. He had no idea who Paul was. So he sort of embellishes a little bit in the letter to the governor, making himself look a little better. Hey, who isn't able to do that kind of thing? Who isn't liable for that type of mentality? We do that sort of thing all the time. We spin ourselves to look a little bit better. I see it in marriage counseling. I see it in meeting with people. It's always, I'm the martyr in the situation. I'm the one painting myself in a good light. And uh, it's a common thing. Our ego is very self-protective. And certainly he wants to make himself look better in the eyes of Felix the governor. So the letter is bound up and carried by the soldiers. Verse 31, the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. That's 35 miles. The next day, they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. Once they got him safely into Gentile territory, they felt the threat was passed. Then the foot soldiers come back and the horsemen carry him on. Verse 33, when they came to Caesarea, another 27 miles and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have also come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. So when we go to Israel, we do our visits to Caesarea. It's usually the first stop. We get off the airplane, onto the bus, and we head north to Caesarea by the sea. Herod the Great had a palace there. There's a big hippodrome there, horse racing. There's the theater there. And that's where Paul was imprisoned for the next two years under Felix. He's in prison there. That's where Cornelius was. Remember, Cornelius was from Caesarea, and it was his household that Peter went to to preach the gospel there to the Gentiles. Caesarea was the military headquarters for the Romans. They would go to Jerusalem during the feast to keep peace. So Pontius Pilate, held the same position years earlier that Felix now holds. They were both governors of the region of Judea. And they were centered not in Jerusalem, but in Caesarea. That was the military-based town. Some of you maybe grew up in military towns, but that was the military town Caesarea was. Now, give me a minute just to talk to you about Felix, because we're going to talk about him over the next couple of weeks here. Let me read on a little farther, and I'll talk to you for a few minutes about Felix, and we'll end at verse 9. You know, as Luke records these things, what you're going to find over and over again that probably many commentators say would have been important to the early church was that over and over again, Paul is exonerated. He's found not guilty by governors and by kings, even though the Jews wanted to accuse him and the Jews wanted to kill him. The Romans have found him innocent, not guilty. And so to the early church, to know that the way that they were following, being followers of Jesus Christ, was not a crime. And praise the Lord, in our country, it's still not a crime for now. In many countries, it is a crime. So that may be why so much history in here. Verse 1 of chapter 24, 
Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. So Ananias, the high priest at the time, he and his consortium leave Jerusalem and head down in elevation, even though it's north, to Caesarea. They've been called there. They're going to have this trial there in front of Governor Felix. But they don't come alone. They come packing. Not weapons, but orators. They came with the Johnny Cochran of their day. You remember the O.J. Simpson trial? If the glove doesn't fit. Yeah, see, you guys watched it. You know, Johnny Cochran made himself a name as a great lawyer during that time. He defended O.J. Simpson, he was an orator and a lawyer. And this guy, Tertullus, is the celeb lawyer that the Jews hire because they got to make sure they get a guilty charge against Paul. So they don't mess around. They don't defend themselves. They say, we need an expert. Doesn't matter if what he says is true, as long as it sounds good. That's what matters. So they bring Tertullus to represent them. And when he was called upon, verse 2, Tertullus began his accusation saying, so this is him speaking now to Felix, the governor. Seeing that through you, we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix with thankfulness. So this is his introduction. He's doing a common thing. You know, you don't go to sit before a governor and say, well, you know, we really think you're a jerk but we really need to get a positive outcome here. So no, you butter the guy up. That's what orators do. That's what rhetoric is about. Influence and flattery. I got to manipulate because I want to get something done. Be careful, church. Be careful if someone is overly flattering to you, they probably want something from you. The more solid you are in who you are, the less susceptible you will be to manipulation by flattery. Now, what you don't know that I'm going to tell you about is that Felix was none of these things that Tertullus said he was. Notice they said that through you, we enjoyed great peace. That was not true. Under Felix, there were more uprisings and more discontent than there had previously been in that region. Felix, by the way, again, had the same job as Pontius Pilate. He ruled from 52 to 59 AD, just giving you a time frame. The interesting thing about Felix is he's the first one, unique situation, where he was a slave who'd been freed and then become a Roman governor. That was unheard of. So how did that happen? You want to talk about another coincidence or God incidence? It turns out that Felix was brought up in the home with a young man named Claudius. You see, Felix and his brother Paulus were slaves in a Roman house of a woman named Antonia. Okay, I know this is a little confusing. Hang with me. So Felix and his brother slaves in a Roman household. They were kids. They were young. Their mother's name is Antonia. Antonia had a son named Claudius. So Claudius and Felix and Paulus, they hung out together as kids. They all grew up in the same house, two of them as slaves, one of them as a son. Well, it turns out Claudius grows up and becomes Emperor Claudius. Isn't that a nice thing? Talk about having friends in high places. I asked in the first service, did anybody grow up with someone famous? And uh, I didn't take answers to that during the service. But later on, one guy said he grew up right down the street playing on the playground with Madonna. So some of you may have had that. Felix grows up with this famous guy. He gets freed. His brother becomes secretary of the treasury. And he gets appointed by his childhood friend, Emperor Claudius, to be governor 
of Judea. But some of us know, not being a politician, we can understand, help me out, church, that it's difficult when someone ends up in a political position, but they don't understand the system of politics. I'm just saying, we understand how these things can be difficult. It turns out Josephus tells us that Felix would catch the Jewish zealots. He spent every day catching, chasing Jewish zealots and crucifying them daily. I don't think the Jews would have taken kindly that. Tacitus, a Roman historian, says that Felix practiced every kind of cruelty and lust. He wielded royal power with the instincts of a slave. Now, again, let me draw your attention back to Tertullus' opening arguments. He says, we seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Not. Not at all. But he goes on, nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague. Circle that. We'll come back to it in just a second. That'll be our final point for today. We have found this man a plague. Accusation number one. A creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world. So they don't like people that create dissension. And the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, he's a ringleader. And those are the accusations. Another accusation, verse 6, he even tried to profane the temple. And we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But verse 7, be careful, Tertullus, because now you're implicating the commander in front of the governor. He says, but the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands commanding his accusers to come to you. So, hey, we'd have been fine if the commander didn't get in the way of the whole thing. We were doing okay till the commander got in the way, and that's what's caused all this mess. It's your commander's fault. So it's Paul's fault. It's your fault. It's the commander's fault. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So we're going to pause in the midst of this tense Johnny Cochran courtroom scene Paul will defend himself and we'll hear Paul's defense next week. But the only thing, the last point I want to make, I want you to notice the first accusation against the Apostle Paul was not really an accusation. It was more like an identification. What do they call Paul? A plague, a plague. Now, it's an interesting thing about human beings. We have a great propensity toward cruelty against one another, more so than most in the animal kingdom. We uh, have this ability to hurt and do harm to one another. Now, this has troubled me for a long time as it's troubled you. And I began to think about these things. And I think, you know, as we live in the world that we live in and we see tensions very high, you look back in history and you go, how does apartheid happen in South Africa? How does genocide happen in Rwanda? How does the Holocaust happen? How do people Intelligent people, you guys know so many of the Third Reich. These were university PhD men that were involved with Hitler. These were not dumb, ignorant people. How do they do it? How do you get to that place where you can do such things, such atrocities to people? And it comes from the place where we have to dehumanize people because there's something in us that shudders against hurting others or harming others or especially taking another's life. There's something innate in us, given to us by God, who is the giver of life. And it's only his to take. That's why there's so much in the Old Testament about, hey, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. If you take life, then your life gets taken. Why? Because yours is not to take life. 
Life is mine. So if you want to harm somebody, if you want to get rid of them, the first thing you have to do is make them less than human. And so you see words used like, Paul is a plague. Now, I don't know when the last time you got sick was and you took a um, antibiotic or crushed a spider in your house. Anybody feel guilty about crushing a spider in their house? Go, ew, boom, you know. Don't think twice about that. Why? Because it's an insect. It's not human. It's less than human. Insects we would perceive as lower creatures than ourselves. But what about antibiotics? You take antibiotics, you kill bacteria, viruses in your body. You don't feel bad about that, right? Because we know plagues are bad. You know, polio, these things are are bad. They're hurtful. And so they need to be eradicated. And so when this language is used against Paul, calling him a plague, what they're saying is, look, he is influencing in a negative way other people. He needs to be eradicated. And to justify wanting to kill him, they have to dehumanize him. And I say this at this point because we live in a country, again, where it's not a baby. It's just a a group of cells. And I love the work that the Pregnancy Center of Virginia does, bringing women in to see, actually, it's a baby. You see, we can dehumanize. It's a fetus, not really human. You see how that works, folks? Because if we can justify it being less than human, and just be paying attention in our own lives The way the rhetoric that we use, notice this is part of the the rhetoric, the rhetoric even of the church. When we start to label people as somehow less than human, see, every human being is created in the image of God. And God so loved the world. God so didn't just love people like us. God so loved the world. So when we talk about people, be careful of the words you use and be careful of the words that you're being fed by the rhetoric. Because when someone wants to do another group harm, it's easy to get sucked into that. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're a plague. That's how Holocaust happened. Because you stop seeing people as people. You start to see them as less than people. Amen, church? That person might be living a homosexual lifestyle, but they're created in the image of God. And they are human. And you might not agree with what they do. And what they do might be against the word of God, but they still deserve love and to be treated like a human being. Amen, church.